Pierce, and you're listening to Grotto Pod. So, we're in a new year, and the new year, the new decade, is but another symptom of the constant arrival of the future. And we wanted today to discuss writers who take up uh, the future in their work, writers who project an alternative or more extreme version of the societies that we now inhabit. That's right, I'm talking about dystopia. I can't actually remember how we settled on this topic as a group, but I, I suspect that part of the occasion was the new year, 2020, sounds like the future, even though it is our present. And another part of the occasion is this grim but cautiously hopeful political moment we're living through, um, which is not to be confused with the last grim but cautiously hopeful <laughs> <laughs> political moment we lived through. Um, and I mention this because I think that grimness and cautious hopefulness are hallmarks of the books that we chose to discuss today. So I'm joined by Beth Weingarner and Susie Gerhardt. Hi, you two. Hello, Daniel. Um, and so each of us picked a book to, to talk about that we saw as sort of specimens of, of, of this genre, of these concerns, and also just books that we read somewhat <laughs> recently that we liked. Uh, so, uh, Susie, I figured we would start uh, with uh, you, because I think you have the sort of best-known book of the bunch, which is uh, Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. Yes, I'm always going out on a limb and choosing a Nobel Prize winners as a... <laughs> but not everyone has always loved Kazuo Ishiguro, so I'll give myself that. But yeah, this isn't a book I've read recently, but it's one that I read when it came out and constantly come back to for whatever reasons. But yeah, there are so many flavors of dystopia. And it's more, I chose this one today because my favorite flavor of dystopia is clone and specifically biological clone, as opposed to machine-generated clones. So machine-made clones, the dystopian fears that they, they're going to believe they're like us and try to overtake us. Of course, there are many exceptions. But um, with biological clones, the fears that they are like us, but they're not treated equally. So to back up a little in general, I love dystopias that extrapolate from the hubris um, that we show with so-called innovative health technologies. So the idea that whatever the cure is, um, it's going to be worth the cost. And uh-oh is what happens. But <laughs> ethics, yeah. <laughs> ethics is not um, where this particular novel goes with its biological clones, which is was an interesting thing for me. So spoiler alert, the fact that the characters are clones is itself giving away a twist. So press pause if you don't want to know anything more about the novel I'm going to talk about. But yes, one surprise of Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, a 2005 book, is that these very everyday people that we've been following, um, we get the reveal well within the book, is that they're clones. The real surprise and the like aha moment is that their lives can teach us something about our own. It's not uncommon for dystopias to create a class of beings, and a lot of times they're human, but not always human, that are kept purely for exploitation, even food, Soylent Green, it's delicious. Um, but Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, these, these characters are not just penned in and ready for freedom. 
like underground people in Jordan Peele's horror movie Us, which I love. Um, these characters, these clones are among us, walking around. They're aware of their position in life and their purpose even at some point, and they're at ease with their fate. And what these clones um, are being used for is, of course, their organs are being harvested for the needs of the person that they match. Ishiguro's characters accept that inequality as a fact, and it's kind of like his butler in Remains of the Day, which um, I also love so much. I love that book. Um, accepting the limitations of their lives. And it was interesting. I was doing a little bit of, you know, refreshing my memory about this book. Um, I saw a little three-minute interview with Kazuo Ishiguro, and he was calling this story a happy one. <laughs> and I was like, that makes me confused about <laughs> what happiness is um, but the fact is um, the fact is we all face limitations and the one limitation that we all will face is the limitation of our lifespan and do we confront that fact the fact of death um, so never let me go forces us to reflect on the delusion of the infinite present that we seem to think we live in with a whole lot of detail um, detail about how we live minute by minute how we cope with every one of those minutes Appreciate every minute that you have on earth. So I have a little quote from the book. Um, one character saying to another, one clone is living longer than another um, and caring for the other with some finalish words going between them. And he says to her, the carer who's living longer, don't you get tired of being a carer? All the rest of us, we became donors ages ago. You've been doing it for years. Don't you sometimes wish, Kath, they'd hurry up and send you your notice? And, you know... I chose this because I just love the vocabulary Ishiguro chooses for life and death. Life is like a job. <laughs> and, you know, punching in, punching out, do you love what you do? And, yeah, the question is, are we living well enough to be ready to retire or be fired? Are we ready for our notice? And that's the profound question. Since you're a fan of um, clone fiction, I wonder if you've watched... Orphan Black? Yeah, well, I've watched um, parts of it, and yeah. I do really, really like it, but um, my life partner loves it. <laughs> yeah, I do, too. I've, I've watched it through two or three times. And, um, I mean, quite aside from the fact that Tatiana Maslany is an amazing actress who can embody all those characters, it reminds me some of what you're talking about with Never Let Me Go. There's always this thing in, in, in clone literature to the other life we could have lived and that's that's you know us is a movie obviously not a piece of literature and it's a horror film not necessarily a dystopian project but certainly deals really acutely with the life we could have lived from the perspective of the the other so beth i was hoping we could get you to talk a little bit about the book that you chose for today, which is Meg Ellison's The Book of the Unnamed Midwife. Yeah, so um, before I read this book, I was really thinking how fascinating it would be to have a dystopian book um, set at least partially in San Francisco. Um, and I was toying with the idea of writing something like that, but fiction is not my best genre. I'm more of a nonfiction writer. And um, Meg Ellison was performing at Writers with Drinks, which is one of San Francisco's longest running literary um, salons it's held every month 
in the mission. Um, and Meg got up and read something totally unrelated, but when she was introduced, it was like she has written this uh, dystopian book that's partly set in San Francisco. And of course, my first thought was, well, now I don't have to write it. And then second, I have to read it right away. Um, and I read it, I think, in two or three days. It's just really um, compelling, gripping reading. It's perhaps um, best described as having a loose relationship with The Handmaid's Tale in the sense of um, she looks very much at what the future might mean for women specifically um, and women who can have children and women who can't have children. In her story, um, it opens with this unnamed midwife working in um, our UCSF hospital here in San Francisco. Um, she wakes up after a few days of having the flu only to discover that basically everyone has been wiped out by the illness that rendered her unconscious for a couple of days. And that the worst hit were women and children. So she bums around San Francisco for a couple of days and eventually decides to strike out across the country. And she discovers that the male to female ratio is so poor that she feels safer disguising herself as a man. So it becomes this um, exploration of gender and what gender means in a society where uh, women are so vastly outnumbered. And as a midwife, she does occasionally encounter women who are giving about ready to give birth. Um, and unfortunately, this illness, which is never fully explained, often kills women as they go into labor and their babies. So um, through the course of the book, there's basically like this ever-increasing dire situation where there's no more children. Women have to band together for safety. Um, and again, all of this exploration of gender, which continues into the second and third books in the series. It's become a trilogy. Um, and the story is kind of fascinating. I think she either self-published it or very small press published it when it first came out. Um, won the Philip K. Dick Award and then um, got picked up for wider publication. And uh, I don't know, I just can't re recommend it highly enough. It's a great read. Sounds fantastic. Um, are all three set in San Francisco? No. Um, the first one begins in San Francisco and then sort of moves east across the country. And then the second and third books are set in different places around the country. And many of the names of cities have been changed by the later generations of people who come after her. Um, one of the things that happens is that the journal she's keeping while she's traveling becomes sort of a almost a spiritual book for um, future generations of women. And the next book is about um, a transgender person who starts out reading the book and then experimenting with going out as male and discovers that he is transgender. So it, it explores a lot of the implications of that in a society where it's very binary and women are very much not in power in a lot of places. Um, but for example, I'm trying to remember some of the names of the towns. Chicago becomes Shy. Can't remember any other. Shy Town. Yeah. Maybe. Oh, question though. Yeah. In, in, on San Francisco, not to get too local here, but I always love like uh, depictions of San Francisco as wreckage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whatever. Mm -hmm. Are there any remnants of the current San Francisco that exist in this time? I don't remember if she returns to San Francisco in the later books, but 
It's interesting because by the third book, new societies have begun to spring up. Um, there's a library on a uh, like a cruise ship offshore uh, Los Angeles, and um, it's she basically describes how society is reborn and new cultures come up um, in these sort of not very well connected anymore places around the country. Um, one of the places that she spends a lot of time in, and I can't remember the name of the town, it's basically an underground kind of Mormon church, but with a goddessy woman as the leader. And she's, she's in control of everything, but she also doesn't let anybody leave. So it's a religious <laughs> cult sort of experience. I'm sure you saw Children of Men, yeah. by the way. Not, not recently, but yeah, quite a while ago. It's good, too. Yeah, I, I, it, it seems like the, the kind of um, fertility anxieties are a pretty common trope of the, of the genre with which I'm admittedly not deeply familiar. So Well, it, it genre, is, I mean. it, <laughs> it is, but also, I mean, women in our society now are still judged by how well they can reproduce or not. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, God, she's sterile. What will her life become? Or, you know, like, what, what? meaning will her life have if she doesn't decide to have children there's still such a value placed on that for women um and you can take it to that extreme in any number of ways handmaid's tale is definitely one of them um and you could totally see that happening because at the end of the day you still need children to sort of continue humanity yeah yeah i mean this makes me think of just how much dystopia has in common with satire i guess as a as a genre and just that it 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 gives a kind of like hyperbolic or exaggerated form to like the you know defining features of our lives as we live yeah, them now exactly um yeah which i guess i can sort of opportunistically use as a transition to <laughs> talk about my book if absolutely we're there okay good um, with that yeah so my my, my choice uh, today is Severance by Ling Ma, which came out in 2018, I believe. And I read it around the time that it was published, and, and so I've just been revisiting it uh, in a kind of patchwork way uh, in preparation for our conversation today. But the, the premise of the book is that this uh, there's been a, a pandemic, uh, Shen fever, uh, which is... It, may have originated in Shenzhen, China. Uh, this feels strikingly like what we're looking at right now. <laughs> <laughs> totally um, uh, coincidental, but um, yeah, and the, the basically the, the first expression of the disease is that people, um, people who contract the fever reenact their most familiar activities so you know like if you spend your days on you know like the floor of a banana republic folding clothing uh that is what you will start to do until you know you you die essentially so there um are just these you know just all of these images of essentially zombies just kind of going about their erstwhile daily lives in New York City. 
um, while they're like decomposing, you know, like, you know, <laughs> someone will just be missing a jaw. Um, but it's this almost sweet depiction of, of the zombie, I guess, you know, we're so accustomed to the zombie as this sort of menacing figure um, belonging to, you know, like a large homicidal mass. And, and here the, the, the persona of each zombie is so attached to the the individual who once inhabited this body, you know. Um, and the narrator of the book is this uh, young woman, Candace Chen, um, uh, who works for a company that produces uh, these very elaborate Bibles, and she. You know, it's kind of a project manager for them and oversees the the production of the the Bibles in China and does <clears throat> a fair amount of travel back and forth. And she herself is uh, her her parents um, uh, emigrated from China, and so in addition to sort of being this sci-fi dystopia, it's also uh, you know a kind of second generation story that's really um, rich and and. Um, and I think the thing that sort of links those two strands of the book, uh, just this sense of nostalgia, um, because nostalgia turns out to sort of be um, not a not a ca catalyst for the illness, but maybe it, like it it makes one more vulnerable to contracting the fever. Um, oh, interesting. Remembering yeah. that correctly, yeah. <laughs> Like I, I there, there's a there's a moment. This is like I think an early early spoiler, but uh, the, there's a a whole band of survivors that this narrator joins once it's just clear that New York is not inhabitable, uh, and one of the the members of this group of survivors goes to her childhood home, uh, and upon entering her childhood bedroom, kind of develops the or, or starts manifesting because the of the nostalgia of the illness because of the nostalgia exactly um and the i don't know if you've seen any of these like youtube videos of like dead malls or whatever just people yeah. going through yeah the you know just abandoned malls and or you know oftentimes it's like a drone flying through uh, an abandoned mall but the the dead mall is a sort of uh, a, v a very important part of the setting for the book, which um, is sort of the link between like our present and the present of the of the novel, um, and kind of what made me think about like the 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 connection between dystopia and satire because um, the book is very much interested in kind of um, in capitalist consumption and what it means to you know live under late capitalism and and all of these things and um and it was just so fun to kind of see those issues explored in such a kind of clever way so yeah i definitely recommend the book there are there are of course a couple of um dystopian and zombie themed uh, empty mall Movie is one I think is the Day of the Dead. Is that the oh, right one? Yeah. Uh, one of the early George Romero movies yeah. about you know all the people coming back to the mall, but they're zombies and they're just trying to go back to where the, the <laughs> what's familiar to them. And totally. then the other one is um, Night of the Comet, where um, a comet comes and you know strikes down all of humanity, and these girls live out 
what it's like to live in a mall when there's nobody there. Um, it gets creepier and creepier toward the end, but there are parts of it that are also really fun. I, I, I know that like the, the George Romero zombies are like like part of like the, the premise is that they're like doing what like they used to do or like exactly. what their old instincts tell them to do. So yeah. Must go want, to the mall. Yeah, must go to the mall. <laughs> I wanna see a zombie swiping, you know. Just oh, hang yeah. out the the neck put down, <laughs> hand up, swipe. They, they're sure. not even walking, they're yeah. just swiping. Oh well, yeah, but yeah. It's almost like too close to our um our <clears throat> reality nostalgia is a disease it's warned tony kushner against nostalgia um, against so, yeah <laughs> against are you pro i i, I don't I, I think i just have a sort of like uh I, i've i've made a, a neutral piece with it <laughs> you know there's a um a plot device in the new watchman series that aired last year on hbo yes. where um the main character, um, Angela Abar, takes these pills, and they turned out to be nostalgia pills, but they're her grandfather's nostalgia pills, and you're not supposed to take somebody else's nostalgia, oh. and you're definitely not supposed to take them all at once like she did. So she goes into like a, you would call it a psychosis of reliving his life, yeah. um, and then has to be rehabilitated from that. But it's an interesting way of her being able to experience his history uh, sort of firsthand. Wow. And they did some really cool stuff where, like, it starts out with him in the scene, but then it turns out to be her in the scene. And, yeah. and a lot of it has to do with um, the racial dynamics in America from, you know, they start out with the um, the Wall Street riots um, that have not gotten enough attention, but that her grandfather was out when he was a young boy. And then sort of going from there through a lot of his experiences as a young black police officer and some other stuff but anyway nostalgia bad apparently yeah i mean especially political nostalgia yeah the worst or you know like large-scale cultural nostalgia very toxic yeah it just depends on what era you choose to be nostalgic for what your political perspective is now there's some stuff about um you know i haven't read severance i want to but from a you know sentence sentence by sentence perspective some stuff about her writing that i've heard compared a little bit with um sugar yeah yeah i, I know i know that she, she cites him as an influence for sure i think I, I feel like i read that um i read her maybe you know just recommending or talking about remains of the day being a big book for her i just love how far you know Ishiguro goes with just being really unafraid to be ordinary like yeah. there's not a lot of shiny language and and it, it's a challenge to me because I'm a reader who I want to go in and be dazzled by the first paragraph I want something super clever to just like grab me mm-hmm. um but it's testament to I think how powerful you know the world he created is that I kept going with it and always returned to that book but it's another reason I was sort of I'm so intrigued by severance I can't wait to read it and we have a uh, spontaneous uh, entrant into this conversation. We are thrilled to have uh, Andrew Braithwaite here to discuss the power. Hi, Andrew. Hi, guys. I was just uh, I was just making coffee, and uh, I was happy that there's still uh, coffee uh, in this world. So that means we haven't entered the dystopia yet. We have not. No, you can you can still get caffeinated. I'm I'm very grateful. 
It may also indicate dystopia if there's coffee, but all of the half and half is gone. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was. I was. Uh, uh, it's. It's funny to be talking about uh, dystopian books, and I was just thinking about uh, the power uh, this morning, actually. Uh, and uh, uh, so the power. Uh, I, I read it about a year ago. It came out in 2016. Uh, by a British writer named Naomi Alderman. Um, it is a, uh, a novel. The sort of premise of the novel is uh, it's set, in, uh, I think, 5,000 years uh, uh, in the future uh, uh, of our present time uh, in a matriarchal, uh, a matriarchal society, uh, or, or at least the book is framed uh, in this, in this uh, kind of opening and closing device as uh, being reported from this matriarchal future, and so it is sort of a, a, a telling of how we got there. So it, it hops then back to the present day, and uh, our, our current uh, uh, patriarchal society, and there's this, uh, this premise of women starting to have these powers, uh, uh, especially younger women, where they uh, develop the ability to kind of release jolts of electricity through their hands. Uh, uh, through uh, uh, complex uh, and, and mysterious uh, biological uh, uh, phenomena, and uh, no one really understands it uh, in the in the moment that the novel is set. Um, but you can kind of see the seeds of 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 how you get to a dystopian future when when you're confronted with massive uh, uh, structural change. Uh, in society and civilization. So basically, uh, I guess it's uh, it spoils the book a bit, but uh, uh, things don't go super well uh, uh, <laughs> due to all these women having all this power. Um, at least not at least not initially. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it, it sort of uh, is a is an interesting commentary on how like. You can achieve a, a, a less than uh, ideal world from anybody having too much power. Uh, so you know it's a, it's a, a kind of a, a written from a feminist perspective, but it is sort of a, a cautionary tale of any kind of a, a change in the power structure where uh, the people who gain the power. Uh, don't use it in a way that pushes for sort of equality and better society. They just sort of can use it punitively. They can just sort of, it, it's that idea of, of, of people taking power and uh, using it uh, just as badly as the people who had the power before, so. <laughs> have either of you read this book? I haven't read it, no. I have not, although, um, you know, uh, Naomi Alderman is a friend of friends of mine, and I actually didn't realize that that's what this book was about because I hadn't <laughs> looked into it. Uh, what I do know is that a couple of years ago, Barack Obama recommended it as one of the books that he'd read mm -hmm. that year, and he talked very highly about it. So um, I wonder if he fantasizes. Yeah, so, he so would she, zap people if he wanted to. It was, it was uh, I think this is her fourth uh, uh, novel, and it was... Um, she, she had actually, uh, Naomi Alderman had, through some kind of a, a, a fellowship or organization, had gotten into a mentoring relationship with Margaret Atwood. Wow. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of echoes of some of Margaret Atwood's sort of sci-fi dystopian uh, fiction in this book. And uh, there's, you know, I, I was thinking about it. There's an interesting framing device uh, 
where uh, at the beginning of the book, uh, it's it's uh, a, a man sort of reporting to the woman who runs the academic department where he's studying five thousand years in the future, and he he's got he's found this story of the period in time when we kind of began the transition from the patriarchal society to the matriarchal society. And uh, so, so he kind of reports this, this era, which is kind of set in a near present era of ours. And then the kind of punchline at the end of the book is there's this, uh, uh, spoiler alert, there's this uh, 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 letter back from uh, the woman 5,000 years in the future to this young man studying under her. And he's like, yeah, this is, uh, she says, this is very interesting. Um, but you'll never get it published if you put your own name on it. You're going to have to use a feminine pseudonym. Um, and I was thinking, like, I, I, I've been, I've been trying to get a uh, uh, my own sort of uh, uh, near present uh, dystopian uh, sci-fi book published, and uh, I was having trouble. Uh, I was searching for literary agents, and I actually had a literary agent recommend to me. It has a female protagonist. Uh, my novel, and she actually recommended it to me. She's like, "Have you ever thought about using a uh, female pseudonym?" Oh boy! And uh, I was like, "Okay, so there, that's where, that's where <laughs> we're at." Which is interesting. It's kind of cool. I want to go back in a just a little popular mechanics mode, like, like for instance, if I get those powers in my fingertips, like, wh- what do I do with the powers? How does how does it operate on a physical level? Yeah. So you can. Um, uh, in the book, you can use them. Uh, a woman, especially a younger woman, it, it sort of removes a lot of the fear that I think a, a lot of women have in our in our present society of, of being alone, of being uh, you know walking through a city at night. Yeah, it's it's really a defensive mechanism uh, initially, and it really express it starts to express itself first of all in in sort of teenage pubescent girls, um, and they're the first ones that kind of get these powers. Um, and then they kind of experiment with how they, how else they can use them. So there's a, there's a really interesting scene uh, uh, between one of the uh, one of the characters who is um, sort of forming a, a relationship with a younger male character, and they become intimate. And she, you know, unintentionally, uh, because you know, at, at first uh, the, these girls have a lot of difficulty controlling uh, this newfound power because nobody has taught them, nobody knows why it's happening or how they use it, and so. Uh, it also becomes a very kind of scary thing mm. for not only not only men but actually like like there's one of the characters is a, is uh, you know there's sort of four point of view characters and one of them is is a, a mother she's actually um, she's either a mayor or works in government and she has a teenage daughter um, and uh, her teenage daughter starts to say you know mom I have I'm having these powers that the girls are having and. And so it, it, even, the, even the sort of older women are kind of unsure of how to, whether, whether they should send their daughters to these new schools that pop up to train people to use them uh, appropriately or, you know. Professor X. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Academy. Yeah, I was, when you were talking about the, the adolescent girls, I was, I'm the mom of a preteen, and boy, if she had that power, she'd be using it on me all the time. Yeah, <laughs> terrifying. Thank you very much for uh, joining us in in our podcasting chamber, Andrew. Yeah, of course. Um, And that's our show for today. Grotto Pod is produced by Susie Gerhardt, George Higgins, Ben Marks, Beth Weingarner, and myself. The music is by Sugartown. Grotto Pod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to Grotto Pod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Pierce, and thanks for listening.